The CDC is reportedly planning to ease up on the isolation time for those who test positive for COVID-19. Experts say the new guidance may align with the current thinking about how people are behaving. What it means for COVID spread coming up on this Tuesday, February 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, why Vladimir Putin has such a hold on the far right in America, once unthinkable for the party of Ronald Reagan. And the Federal Reserve has said it wants assurances that inflation is under control before it cuts interest rates, but the new inflation figures give it no such assurance. The Fed has made clear they need to see it, right? Not just project it, but see it. And they did not see it in this January reading. Also, the NFL's ability to grab lots and lots of viewers. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. stocks are regaining some ground after the Dow tumbled more than 700 points in afternoon trading. This following a report showing hotter-than-expected inflation last month. NPR Scott Horsley says that could affect the timing of the Federal Reserve's next move on interest rates. The cost of living index from the Labor Department came in slightly hotter than forecasters had expected. Rising rents and food prices were only partially offset by falling gasoline prices. Stripping out volatile food and energy prices, the so-called core inflation rate in January was 3.9 percent, the same as the month before. The Federal Reserve has said it wants to see more evidence that inflation is heading down towards its target of 2 percent before the central bank starts cutting interest rates. The Fed's been paying special attention to the price of services such as health care and car repair, which were up last month. That's in contrast to the price of goods like used cars, which were sharply lower. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. The Dow's closed down 524 points. President Biden is calling on the House of Representatives to take a bipartisan legislation passed by the Senate that includes military assistance to Ukraine and Israel. NPR's Tamara Keith reports Biden used remarks today to hit former President Donald Trump for saying that if NATO allies did not spend enough on their own defense, he'd tell Russia to do whatever it wants. Biden described Trump's weekend rally rant about NATO as dumb, shameful, dangerous and un-American. He said history is watching and told House Republicans who have indicated they plan to block the Senate bill that they need to think hard about whose side they are on. you got to decide. Are you going to stand up for freedom? We're going to side with terror and tyranny. You're going to stand with Ukraine. You're going to stand with Putin. We stand with America or Trump. Speaker Mike Johnson has said the House won't take its cues from the Senate. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Snow is beginning to taper off in many parts of the northeastern U.S. after leaving a foot of snow in some places. NPR's Tobia Smith reports parts of New York and New Jersey saw their biggest snowfall totals in a couple of years. The snow was intense, but the storm was fast moving, sparing many locations what could have been much worse. Temperatures in the coming days hovering above freezing will also mean the snow will melt relatively soon. But National Weather Service meteorologist Nelson Vaz says the short-term hazard will be black ice. Tonight, temperatures are going to go back below freezing, so that's going to cause any wet surfaces, slush and and water to refreeze. And that's always the tricky part is you're not able to see the black ice until it's too late. The snow was enough to cancel some 1,500 flights and to make for a picturesque walk through Central Park in New York City. But in the Boston area, the storm was a bust, leaving most areas with just a few inches. Tovia Smith, NPR News. You're listening to NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. More than 24,000 power customers in Massachusetts are without electricity right now thanks to today's storm. At least half of those are on Cape Cod, where strong winds have come on the back end of the storm. High tide was nearly three hours ago, but there's still some flooding in many places. Chip Riley is Director of Emergency Preparedness for Barnstable County. He's warning people to stay off the roads. You know, it's not the time to go watch the big waves at the ocean. We really want people to stay home, stay off the roads, let our first responders, our DPW crews get out and do what they get paid to do. And it's a lot easier if they're not competing with other traffic on the roads. Crews are preparing for the next high tide, which will be about 2 in the morning. National Weather Service says about 9 inches of snow fell in Dudley, Mass., 7 inches in Fall River. What was supposed to be a major winter storm with significant snow in Boston will leave the city with just about no accumulation. WBR's Anthony Brooks reports on how this is a tricky one for forecasters. There were predictions yesterday of up to a foot of snow for Boston and Worcester in what was supposed to be the biggest nor'easter in two years. Schools were closed and city halls shut down. Residents told to stay home. But today, many folks are asking, what storm? I would be surprised if we see much more than an inch. Meteorologist Christy Smith with the National Weather Service says all the data yesterday pointed to heavy snow from Springfield to Boston. But then the whole system shifted south. It buried parts of Connecticut with up to 15 inches, but in greater Boston, just a reminder that weather forecasting can be an inexact science. We never know how much snow a storm's going to produce until it falls. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Both of Massachusetts U.S. Senators voted in favor of the $95 billion foreign aid package that includes support for Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, and Taiwan. It won approval in the Senate early this morning. Senator Elizabeth Warren calls congressional support for Ukraine more urgent than ever after former President Donald Trump threatened to abandon NATO. Senator Ed Markey says the bill will provide humanitarian aid in places where it's desperately needed. In the forecast, 32 degrees right now could be slick on the roads tonight as temperatures fall. Should drop to the mid-20s overnight, causing wet roads to turn icy. Skies should start to clear overnight tonight. Tomorrow, maybe some clouds early, but then sunshine later on. Windy, temperatures just about freezing for a high. Again, 32 degrees in Boston at 407. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Imaginable Futures. Celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Funding for Ukraine has passed the Senate over strenuous objections from some Republicans. The party has moved a long way from the days of Ronald Reagan. So a party that thought of itself as you know, a leading voice for the promotion of democracy around the world now is very, very much in the thrall of autocracy. And I think that's Trump. We'll get into the rights support of Russia, my conversation with Anne Applebaum in a few minutes. But first, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention may soon drop its isolation guidance for people with COVID. Currently, people who test positive are supposed to stay home for at least five days to reduce the chances of spreading the virus to others. And Pierce Peng Wong joins us now to talk about to talk more about what we know. Hi there. Hey, Juana. So, so change is in the air, it seems. What do we know about what the CDC is up to here? So the short answer is that we know a little bit. The planned change was described this morning in an article in the Washington Post. It was attributed to several unnamed CDC officials. 
And according to the article, the CDC plans to drop the current five-day isolation period for people who test positive for COVID. They plan to rely on symptoms instead. So if you don't have a fever, if your symptoms are mild, you can still go to school and you can still go to work. These changes could be coming as soon as April. But so far, Awana, the CDC is not confirming the report. A spokesperson for the agency said they have, quote, no updates to COVID guidelines to announce at this time. But it does follow what some states, California and Oregon, specifically have already done. Okay, so I understand there's no announcement yet, but why might they be doing this? Talk about the science. Has the virus or what we understand about COVID, has that changed? It has not. Um, Here's Jennifer Nazo from the Brown University School of Public Health. So first of all, the science of COVID has not changed. In no way do we suddenly think that you are not likely to be contagious shorter than five days or even potentially after five days. So this would not be a move designed to stop COVID from spreading. It's more of an acknowledgement that COVID spreading is now less consequential than it used to be, at least from a public health perspective. This winter, deaths and hospitalizations did go up, but they were nowhere near as high as they were in previous years. And in fact, the hospitals were mostly okay, not overwhelmed this virus season. So even though the science hasn't changed, if you test positive for COVID, you're probably contagious for a few days at least. Stopping the spread of COVID might not be as important as it used to be, at least when you look at some of the key pandemic metrics. Okay, so I'm curious how much of a difference a change like this would actually make. And do we know if people have even been following that guidance, that isolation guidance that we've gotten used to? Well, the reality is that even testing is more expensive now and it's harder to access than it used to be. So people may not even be testing to know that they have COVID, let alone be taking the steps to isolate for it. But Jessica Milati Rivera, she's an epidemiologist and advisor to the De Beaumont Foundation. She says the public health advice should be guiding people and not the other way around. It's like saying, well, people aren't really wearing their seatbelts. So I guess we can say seatbelts don't matter. That kind of defeats the purpose of providing evidence-based information that's still the responsibility of public health to do that. And the change in CDC guidance could make a big difference, for instance, in workplace policies. So if the CDC stops recommending people stay home for a week with COVID, workers might be forced to go into work a little sick. They might spread the virus to others. And for those that are very young, old, immune compromised, or people who have other medical conditions, it just makes it that much harder for them to stay healthy. Right. I mean, listening to you, this all makes it sound like the CDC is going to be treating COVID more like the flu. Yeah, that's the way that it's going. But some health experts really wonder if that's the right model. Like maybe instead of going with that status quo, we could pull our response to flu and other respiratory viruses more in the direction of COVID. So they say that we saw during COVID that with a little bit more effort, maybe masks and consideration for other people, we could just be doing a lot better in protecting people from these viruses. NPR's Peng Wong, thank you as always. You're welcome. Let's consider for a moment the narrative built over many years of the Cold War of Russia as the bad guy, as America's enemy. Then consider widespread Republican resistance to sending more money to Ukraine to fight Russia. Or consider Tucker Carlson, who just flew to Moscow to sit down with Vladimir Putin for more than two hours of mostly softball questions. Consider Donald Trump, who says he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell they want 
to NATO members that Trump believes aren't spending enough on defense. So what gives? Why the romance between the American right and Russia? Well, we're going to put that now to Anne Applebaum. She's written about this in a piece for The Atlantic headlined The False Romance of Russia. Anne Applebaum, welcome. Thank you. I want to begin by noting that this piece you wrote, it's coming up on five years old. It's from 2019. Have you, as a longtime Russia watcher, tracked Any diminishment in the intervening years in American conservative admiration for Russia? No, on the contrary. I think the conservative party's romance with Russia has grown uh, quite a bit deeper. This is now a party that is profoundly critical of the United States. Uh, It doesn't like the the diverse society that we've become. It doesn't like immigration. Uh, It doesn't like the kind of national conversation we have. And ironically, like the left of a previous generation, they've imagined that a better uh, ideal version of our society exists in Russia, a kind of white Christian nation, you know, unified beneath a single leader without all this messy, ugly democracy and all these different kinds of people. And that's, I think, one of the roots of their admiration. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying the answer to what is Russia's appeal to the American right is that Russia more closely resembles the country that some conservatives here in the U.S. wish we were living in, wish the United States were? Yes, I think that's right. Um, The irony being, of course, that Russia isn't like that at all. Russia is, if anything, more diverse than the U.S. Russia has a very large Muslim population. It's also a country that persecutes uh, Protestant uh, religions. Uh, it, any any religion other than two or three that are recognized, Judaism, Orthodoxy, and Catholicism, count as sects and are and and cults and can be people can be arrested. So, the irony is that the nation that they imagine it to be is, of course, quite a long way from what it is. How much of this is personality driven? Like, how much is is about Vladimir Putin? Some of it's about Putin. I mean, I think more of it is really about Donald Trump. In a way, he made it okay to admire Russia because he admires Russia. He's said flattering things about Putin. Incidentally, has said very flattering things about other autocrats. He admires Xi Jinping. He admires the leader of North Korea. As he uses that language, he was using it when he was president. You know, that I think has had a pretty transformative impact on the party. So a party that thought of itself as um, you know, a leading voice for the promotion of democracy around the world now is very much in the thrall of autocracy. And I think that's um, I think that's Trump. Let me push you on this a little bit and ask, is some of the resistance, for example, to sending more military aid to Ukraine, is some of this practical? I'm thinking of a comment that um, Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, uh, something he said, which is basically why keep throwing money at a war in Ukraine that Vladimir Putin appears committed to fighting for years. It is shameful to conduct foreign policy through blank check writing to never-ending war, and it is extra shameful to do it while ignoring the problems of your own country. The answer to that is that you have to look at what happens if we don't do that. If Putin wins, if he takes over all of Ukraine, which is still his goal, and which he's stated very recently in in his conversation with Tucker Carlson is still his goal, Um, Then the military problem and the challenge to American allies and ultimately America itself becomes worse. So what we're paying now is a fraction of what we will pay and the price that we will be forced to pay if Putin wins. You know, I should also say I'm, I'm not sure Americans realize the degree to which the role of America as the security provider in Europe, in Asia and elsewhere 
um, opens up other kinds of economic opportunities. And why do people buy American products? Why do they buy American energy equipment? Some of that big American investment, some of that is because it's felt in particularly smaller countries that, you know, we need to make some gesture in the direction of the United States. I mean, all that is sounds a little fuzzy, but there is a very real economic advantage that we have from from playing the role that we do. And it, it is amazing that so many senior politicians are so willing to give it up that quickly. Mm. I want to ask about one other part of this, and you nodded to it, but the, the role of American culture wars and how those are being projected in this conversation. The belief among conservative circles, uh, some conservative circles, that America is too woke, that progressives have lost their mind, and that Vladimir Putin, whatever you make of his policy in Ukraine or anywhere else, he doesn't abide that stuff in Russia. He wins elections. He doesn't tolerate dissent. He's photographed, you know, bare-chested riding great steeds through the fields, all of that. So he actually goes even a bit farther than that. So Putin intervenes very directly in American culture wars. So he talks about America having all these many different genders and America being degenerate. Um, He talks about, you know, how homosexuality and trans people are are making, you know, bringing down Europe and the United States. Um, That's a big theme on Russian television. Sometimes Putin talks about it in public. Um, he's talked about the U.S. as a satanic culture, you know, an anti-religious culture. And some of that is, he may believe, um, and some of that is absolutely designed to appeal to the American right, um, the European right, and indeed traditionalist, you know, people and cultures around the world. I mean, as I say, a lot of it's a fiction. I mean, there's no evidence that Russia is particularly strong on family values when you look closely at statistics and how people live. Um, but it does have an appeal in a world where, you know, social norms are changing very fast, where there's demographic change, there's economic change. um, And Putin uses this traditionalist language as a way of creating the impression that he's the leader of some kind of alternate civilization where things are more stable. And that's had a, that's been very successful. Anne Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today, the Dow and the S&P both fell about one and four-tenths of a percent. It was the Dow's worst day since last March. NASDAQ also gave up ground to drop to one and eight-tenths of a percent. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and Becoming a Man at ART, a world premiere play about the courage and the community we need to become ourselves. Starts Friday, amrep.org. Consumer prices in Greater Boston did not rise as quickly as the national average between January 2023 and 2024. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says our new or our region saw a 2% increase compared with prices nationally up just over 3%. Locally, the Bureau report was uh, there was a 5% increase in food prices over last year, but energy prices fell by almost 14%. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years, part-time, for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. And Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited. 
designed to keep your car scrub-a-dub clean anytime you want. Tonight, the Bruins forward Brad Marchand is expected to take the ice for his 1,000th NHL game as the Bees take on Tampa Bay. Marchand has spent his entire career in Boston. The Bees will pay tribute to him just before next Monday's matinee at the Garden. In the forecast, should have some clearing skies overnight tonight as the storm moves out. And the storm, depending on where you were, you either got nothing or as much as nine inches of snow. That happened in Dudley in Worcester County. Overnight tonight, clearing skies eventually. Some clouds early tomorrow, but then sunshine later in the day. Temperatures should be right around 32 degrees for Valentine's Day. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series, including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you flew somewhere today, you may have encountered something like this. My neck! My back! About two-thirds of the country's flight attendants are in contract talks, including those at United, American, Southwest, and Alaska. And today was their day of action to call attention to their demands. NPR's Andrea Hsu has more. The flight attendants and their unions have been quick to point out today's action was not a strike and not meant to disrupt travel. Weather in the Northeast took care of that. But at more than 30 airports, including in Seattle and San Francisco, Austin and Charlotte, and Reagan National Airport just outside Washington, D.C., flight attendants marched, chanted, and punched signs into the air, all to demand more. Chip Lowe has flown with United for seven years. You know, the company on all these quarterly earnings calls is saying how great these record profits are and, and how great the organization is doing, but they're not talking about how they're paying their flight attendants fairly. Last year, the major airlines gave pilots historic raises. Now flight attendants who start out earning thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year want the same. Valerie Warsham, who joined Southwest two years ago, says she has to fly a lot and be away from home a lot just to be able to bring home a decent paycheck. Contributing to this is the boarding pay issue. Flight attendants only get their hourly pay once the aircraft doors close. So when Warsham reports for a flight, she gets briefed by the boarding agent and the captain. There are pre-flight safety checks to do. She starts the boarding process. Some people need special assistance getting on board. We have unaccompanied minors. We have people that are traveling with service animals. In other words, it's a lot. All of this stuff is going on before the, sh the door shut. So keep in mind, once the door shut, that's when the actual clock is ticking for us to start getting paid. Southwest flight attendants actually rejected a tentative agreement last year, in part because it didn't include boarding pay. Meanwhile, Americans flight attendants have come to an agreement that would provide half their hourly wage during boarding. But they want other improvements in the contract, including higher wages, and they're ready to strike to get it. Here's Ali Malice. We have not had a raise in five years here at American Airlines. We've had a long pandemic, a lot of inflation, 
We want a contract, but if we have to strike to get a contract, we will. That is, if the federal government allows it. Flight attendant unions can't just call a strike. Under federal law, airline workers must get permission to strike. The union representing American Airlines flight attendants has now twice asked for that permission and will present its case before the National Mediation Board next month. Now, the last time flight attendants went on strike was 30 years ago, when American's flight attendants walked out just before Thanksgiving. Then President Clinton intervened just in time to save travelers' holiday plans, ordering the two sides to resume talks. Today, the airlines say they value the contributions of flight attendants, and they're committed to working toward industry-leading agreements in upcoming negotiation sessions scheduled for next month and beyond. Valerie Warsham, the Southwest flight attendant, hopes they'll keep this in mind. Without us being on the airplane, the airplane does not go up in the air, does it? Nope. It's hard to argue with that. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Sunday's Super Bowl matchup broke viewership records, becoming the most watched telecast in U.S. TV history. An average of more than 123 million people tuned in over the duration of the game. That's according to national ratings figures from Nielsen and CBS. But that gigantic number raises more questions. Is this a reflection of the NFL's relentless marketing machine or the popularity of halftime performer Usher or the Taylor Swift effect? To break it all down, for us, we have NPR TV critic Eric Deggins, who watched the game, poured over all those numbers, and is with us now. Hi, Eric. Hi. Okay, let's start with the numbers. 123.7 million. That just sounds like an awful lot of people. For sure. And even though this is about a 7% increase from last year, that back then an average 115 million people showed up. And that was still astounding. I mean, especially considering that the entire U.S. population is around 330 million people. So the game was watched on platforms that include CBS, Paramount Plus, Nickelodeon, Univision, NFL's digital properties and more. There was an average of about 120 million viewers who watched the game just on CBS, which Nielsen says is the largest single network telecast audience in U.S. TV history. Now, there was about 2.3 million other viewers who watched the Spanish language broadcast on Univision, another 1.2 million who watched the kid-friendly telecast on Nickelodeon and Nick at Night, CBS also said it was the most streamed Super Bowl in history, setting records on Paramount Plus, but they didn't give us specific figures for that. It's worth noting that there's some major past events like the moon landing that were telecast by several different channels that might have gotten a larger figure, but their viewership tabulation might not be easily comparable because they happened so long ago. Right. Okay. Well, I know why I was so excited to watch this game, but help me understand more broadly, why was this game so popular? Well, my hunch is that a few things came together. I mean, I'm sure some Taylor Swift fans showed for that storybook moment where the biggest pop star in the world kisses a Super Bowl champ right after his team wins the big game, right? (laughs) Halftime performer Usher has lots of hits, loads of fans. We had that rare overtime play in a Super Bowl. 
The ratings company Nielsen also has improved how it measures viewing outside the home, which probably helped boost figures. And the numbers prove that football has been a popular sport in America for a very long time, which means it's been popular on TV for a long time. I mean, most of the most watched episodes of American television are Super Bowls. Baseball may call itself America's pastime, but football gets better TV ratings. And Eric, I mean, why is that? Is this the result of savvy marketing by the NFL or is there something else going on? Well, the NFL has been very savvy in its marketing, but the game itself is often more exciting than other sports like, say, baseball. Okay, I know that's controversial, Mm -hmm. but uh, they've got fewer games, so each matchup matters more. Ad industry experts credit Apple's 1984 ad, if you remember that. It introduced its Macintosh computer during the 1984 Super Bowl as the moment when advertisers realized they could make spots into event programming that would draw in non-sports fans. And so now, when everybody's watching their own streaming series and media so fragmented, there's not that many events on TV that we know most people will watch or will talk about the next day, and the Super Bowl is the ultimate example of that. Eric, last thing, do you see any lessons here for other media platforms or perhaps even other sports that are in search of bigger audiences? I don't know. Get Taylor Swift to come to your game. (laughs) I mean, this feels like the culmination of a trend that's been building for years. I mean, it's a blend of the most popular American sport with other stuff like the halftime performance and super ambitious ads that entertain non-sports fans. I mean, 20 or 30 years ago, we had many more events on TV that brought lots of Americans together. Now we have the Super Bowl and, you know, whenever Taylor and Travis decide to get married. Oh, boy. That was NPR TV critic Eric Daggins. Eric, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Vicious Valentines from the Victorian era coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR. Bruins host the Tampa Bay Lightning at the Garden tonight. The puck drops at 7. Tonight will be game number 1,000 as a Bruin for forward Brad Marchand. The team will honor him in a pregame ceremony Monday. Also tonight, the Celtics are back in action. They take on the Brooklyn Nets at 7.30 in New York. This is 90.9 WBUR. Some clearing skies overnight tonight and then a few clouds around early tomorrow. Sunshine eventually tomorrow. Temperature should reach just about 32 to 35 degrees. WBUR supporters include Feldman Geospatial, presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. And Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. Welchforbes.com. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. 
Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Negotiators have been meeting in Cairo today discussing a deal that would bring at least a temporary halt to the fighting in Gaza. NPR's Greg Myrie is following the talks from Tel Aviv. It looks like the, the main things they would be talking about is a ceasefire of around six weeks in length and then additional Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners would be released by the two warring parties. Now, it's hard to say if this is going to be successful. Both sides are interested in talking. Hamas would actually like a a ceasefire that could be extended and lead to a permanent ceasefire. The talks in Cairo come as Israel is facing growing calls to hold back a planned offensive in the crowded southern Gaza city of Rafah. President Biden says opposing the $95 billion military aid package passed by the Senate this morning would play into Putin's hands. At the White House today, he called on House Republicans to immediately take up the bill. Hardliners, aligned with former President Trump, are opposed. Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen says the state will change course and opt in to the federal government's summer electronic benefit transfer program. Low-income families can apply to receive $40 per child per month over the summer for groceries. Nebraska Public Radio's Jolie Peel reports. Governor Jim Pillen initially rejected the aid in December, saying Nebraskans expected pandemic-era government relief to end. The governor says he changed his mind after recent conversations he's had, including one with students. They talked about being hungry and they talked about the summer USDA program and depending upon access uh, when they'd get a sack of food. And from my seat to what I saw there, uh, we have to do better at Nebraska. Prior to the governor's decision change, several senators in Nebraska's legislature sponsored a bill that would have required the state's Department of Health and Human Services to apply for the EBT funds. For NPR News, I'm Jolie Peel. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today's nor'easter is moving off the coast now, and things are already drying out in Boston, where there was little to no snow. Snowfall is mainly over Cape Cod right now, and the big story along the coast isn't the snow, but it's the high winds and flooding. WBR's Patrick Madden has more. For many coastal communities like Situate, big powerful storms also bring the threat of flooding and storm surge. Many of the storefronts here have sandbags out front just in case. At high tide this afternoon around 2 p.m., the parking lot in downtown Situate became overrun with waves of seawater. Resident Ashley Dubay was trying to get ice cream with her family, but that wasn't in the cards. We are looking at a flooded parking lot in Situate Harbor and one of our favorite ice cream shops, Nona's, right on the corner that we wanted to stop by and completely inaccessible. Authorities are warning drivers in coastal communities to be on the lookout for flooded roads, especially around high tide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Patrick Madden. Right now, there are nearly 23,000 power outages statewide. Most are in Dennis and Mashpee. Over at Logan Airport, more than 220 flights in and out of Boston have been canceled today. The website FlightAware reports there are more than 60 delays. Wait times for primary care appointments in Massachusetts are growing. A new survey shows that access to care has become more difficult for three straight years. WBR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey has more. The survey asked patients how long it took to reach someone at their primary care office and how hard it was to schedule appointments. The results were disappointing, says Barbara Rabson. She's president of the nonprofit Massachusetts Health Quality Partners, which conducted the annual poll. People wait a long time to get a hold of primary care offices. When they do get a hold of them, they're told, you know, they're booking months out. I mean, particularly for new patients, I've heard many stories about patients being booked the next year. 
Rabson says some patients are forgoing care, while others end up at hospital emergency rooms, where they also face long wait times. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. 32 degrees in Boston. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres, starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Skies are starting to clear in some areas around Boston right now. Still snowfall south of Boston on the Cape. Overnight lows about 27 degrees. Tomorrow we should have some clouds early. Sunshine should break through as the day progresses. Highs about the low to mid-30s for Valentine's Day. 32 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Inflation came in hotter than expected last month. That suggests it might take longer for the Federal Reserve to start lowering interest rates. Nervous investors reacted to the inflation news today by selling off stocks. The Dow Jones Industrial Average tumbled more than 500 points. NPR's Scott Horsley is here with details from today's inflation report card. Hey, Scott. Hi, Mary Louise. What happened? Because forecasters were expecting a bigger drop in the inflation rate. Yeah. Well, to be clear, the annual inflation rate did come down in January, but not as much as markets were hoping for. Gas prices were down last month, so was the price of clothing and used cars. But that was more than offset by rising prices for rent and food and especially services like car repair and dry cleaning. Overall, the Labor Department said consumer prices were up 3.1% in January compared to last year. Now, that is a smaller annual increase than the month before, and it's way down from the 9-plus percent inflation rate we saw a couple of years ago. But forecasters thought we would get a bigger break than we did last month. So in that sense, today's report was a bit of a disappointment. Well, this prompts me to go next then to what the Federal Reserve might do about it. Of course, the Fed has been battling inflation with higher interest rates. Uh, Did we get some more insight on what their next move may be? Well, (laughs) we may have to wait a little bit longer for that next move than a lot of people were hoping. You know, the central bank has pushed interest rates their highest level in more than two decades in an effort to curb inflation. And Fed officials have said they're not going to start cutting those interest rates until they're confident that inflation is headed all the way back down their target of 2%. Now, that probably means we're going to need to see less inflation on the services side. Uh, You can't have restaurant meals, for example, going up more than 5% a year like they did in the 12 months ending in January. Economist Michael Puglisi of Wells Fargo thinks we will start to see some easing in services inflation, but that's not what showed up in today's report. As the year progresses, we're going to see more room on the services side. But, you know, the upshot there is the Fed has made clear they need to see it, right? Not just project it, but see it. And they did not see it in this January reading. Instead, we saw service prices continuing to climb at a stubbornly fast pace. Investors took that as a sign that we're going to have to wait longer for a cut in interest rates. And that's why you saw that sharp sell-off in the market today with the Dow falling about one one and a third percent. And when you say we're going to have to wait longer for interest rates to be cut, what is the timetable? 
Well, the next Fed meeting is in March, just about five weeks from now. And even before today's report, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell had warned that it was probably too soon for the Fed to start cutting rates at that meeting. A lot of investors had been pinning their hopes on a rate cut at the following meeting in May. That's still possible, although oddsmakers think it's less likely after today's inflation news. Uh, Puglisi still thinks the Fed might be ready to start cutting rates in May, although he admits the timing could slip to June or even later. Despite the big stock market reaction today, Puglisi calls this report just a pothole on the road to price stability, not a sign we're about to make a U-turn towards higher inflation. It's not going to be a um, straight line linear path down, right? There's going to be bumps in the road on this sort of journey back to 2%. Of course, we've seen other bumps on this long, windy road. Uh, inflation has proven unpredictable in both directions. One good sign is, even though prices rose more than expected in January, wages rose even faster. And that's been the case for about nine months now. So even with this higher inflation, the average worker is getting a real boost in his or her buying power. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. NPR's Scott Horsley. Voters will decide today who will replace indicted and expelled New York Republican Congressman George Santos, and both parties have a lot at stake. If Democrats win, they could further narrow Republicans' already razor-thin majority in the House. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports from the last days of campaigning in the special election between former Democratic Congressman Tom Suozzi and Republican County legislator Mozzie Pillip. Talking to voters from one end of the district to the other, there's no question what's on their minds. Immigration is a problem, obviously, because we see it every day. That's Joseph Karras, a sheet metal worker who backs Swazi in Bayside, Queens. The immigration is also taking work from uh, union members as well, so that hurts our pockets as well. So. Louis Mayer, a retired police officer from Plainview, agreed. He voted early for Pillup. The southern border is crazy, and we'd like to see some kind of control there. Not that we don't want immigrants to be here, but we like to see some kind of uh, process, some kind of system, not just people coming here. President Biden won this district in 2020, but Tom Suozzi, the Democratic candidate who served three terms in the House, says Democrats have lost ground here since then. No Democrats won this district for the past three years. We've been losing everything, local races, state races, the federal race. This race may not predict November's battle for control of the House, but it could impact both Democrats and Republican strategies on immigration. Both candidates are talking a lot about border security and trying to make the argument that their opponent is part of the problem. Pillip is blaming Swazi for the border crisis, linking him to Biden in the only debate between the candidates last week. What Tom Swazi and Biden did, they totally opened the border. Millions make the way. We don't know if they are criminals. We don't know if they are terrorists. We don't know who they are here. Swazi repeatedly argues the only way to fix the border is to pass a bipartisan bill, like the Senate plan Republicans on Capitol Hill derailed. Campaigning in plain view, he stressed Pillip opposes it. She's taking this extreme position that will keep the border open and bring more migrants here to New York. Pillip was elected in 2021 as a GOP member of the Nassau County Legislature, even though she was and still is a registered Democrat. She was handpicked by local Republican leaders to run for this seat. Born in Ethiopia, Pillip immigrated to Israel, where she served in the Israeli Defense Forces. Pillip doesn't hold many public events, and her campaign never responded to an NPR's interview requests. But Republican super PACs are blanketing the airways on her behalf. Biden's open border leads to violence right here. I support the president. Tom Swazi helped create our immigration crisis. 
In Congress, he'll make it worse. In an interview with NPR, Swazi sidesteps questions about the president's handling of the border crisis, and that being a liability for him. I wish the president had done something in August, but it is what it is. And now we just have to keep on moving forward to get it done. Democrats are also working to highlight Pillip's position on reproductive rights. Swazi said in the debate that she's giving mixed messages on abortion. She's anti-choice through and through, and voters will not be fooled. The conservative party, which is pushing a federal ban on abortion, endorsed her. But Pillip, a mother of seven, says she's personally pro-life and won't impose her views on others. Therefore, I'm not going to support national abortion ban. Therefore, I'm not going to risk women's right. The district includes a significant Jewish population. Pillip has tried to lump Swazi in with more progressive Democrats who want to condition aid to Israel. But he stresses his record and his visit to Israel in December. This high-cost New York suburb might not be an ideal bellwether to predict every other swing district in the general election in November. But Swazi knows this race still has national implications. Everybody's watching this race. Both of the parties are spending tens, $10 million on this race. They're all watching it. If he wins, he says that will show that voters still want their member of Congress to work across the aisle, even on divisive issues like the border. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Plainview, Long Island. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been one year since a gunman killed three students and wounded five at Michigan State University. In the immediate aftermath, students and others in the community left tributes like cards and bouquets. In the months since then, staff at the university's museum have worked to preserve and document what was left behind. Sophia Salaby of member station WKAR in East Lansing reports. In the days after last year's shooting, spaces all around MSU's campus became makeshift memorials. And thousands showed up when students came back to class, including people like community member Victoria Van Holder, who held a sign offering free hugs. For me personally, I wanted to support the students and the younger generation because I have empathy for what they're going through. Van Holder stood right across from the university's Spartan statue, a campus landmark. Flowers and candles and cards surrounded it. There was memorabilia left at other places, too. More than 1,500 unique items, says MSU Museum Director Devin Ackman. And his team got to work collecting them, so nothing would end up being destroyed by the elements. A lot of these materials were wet. From stuffed animals to handmade crocheted hearts. It was winter, it was cold, so we had to do a lot of preliminary work and just drying out and stabilizing the materials. Ackman says he's also been moved by the notes people left on campus. There are numbers of sealed letters, which were very obviously private, and you know those have remained sealed to this day. We don't know what was expressed in those. It's taken time to process it all, and Ackman says it's been intense work. We have to be really mindful of that it's really difficult to work with this stuff. And we are Spartans. We're graduates. We're employees. We're part of this community. So this has taken a toll on us as well. What to do with this type of memorabilia after tragedy has become more common after shootings on college campuses from Kent State in 1970 
to the University of Iowa in 1991 to last December's massacre at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Aaron Purcell is the director of Special Collections and University Archives at Virginia Tech. The nation's most deadly college shooting occurred there in 2007 when 32 people were killed and more than 20 injured. Purcell says one of his first jobs at the university was moving the school's condolence collection into storage space. Now he often hears from other communities after mass shootings happen. Right around the holidays, I heard from my equivalent uh, director, archivist at UNLV, asking me these exact same questions. And then we heard from someone in Maine that they were trying to document what happened in Lewiston. And Purcell says it's not only about documenting the trauma. This collection is a real good way to remember that, the significance of the outpouring, not the event itself, but the outpouring and how this was like a cultural touchstone. Mary Worrell, the head of collections at the MSU Museum, agrees, saying the materials they've gathered after the shooting in East Lansing have taken on greater meaning. For those of us who are drawn to museum work, a lot of that is because we really have a respect for the power that an object holds. For now, MSU Museum staff will continue to catalog, digitize, and store the objects left to honor the victims of last year's shooting and the resolve of the Michigan State University community. For NPR News, I'm Sophia Salaby. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Keep track of the trials of the cases against former President Donald Trump in about 20 minutes, how they could become clearer this week with key decisions and hearings. The latest in the forecast from Danielle Noyce coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, art from the Caribbean and beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition on view now. ICABoston.org and Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. Well, today's storm was a wily one. It left areas that were supposed to get off easy, saturated with snow instead, and areas such as Greater Boston that were battening down the hatches with little to no accumulation instead. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce describes the evasiveness of the storm. What happened today, Danielle? Oh, Lisa, this was certainly a tricky one. And the models were in fairly good agreement leading up to this event until about 24 hours out. I don't know if you saw last evening, you know, the models started shifting south and then every everything kind of followed after that. So, you know, there was a couple different things going on, two different pieces of energy that didn't come together uh, quite as strongly just off the coastline, couple different jet stream disturbances that didn't play a role as much as they would have. And the storm just wasn't as strong and was farther offshore. So that's what made the significant difference this time around. Which tells me again that your job is really, really hard. Uh, so. <laughs> So, <laughs> so the greatest, the greatest uh, amount of snow happened where? I mean, Lisa, my kids had a snow day today for for grass. They kept looking out the window saying, Mama, where's the snow? So, you know, I'm, I'm feeling it here. And the, in and around the city, it was coating. But we've had some six, seven, eight-inch amounts, 9.3 inches in southern Worcester County. So there were a couple jackpot zones. Um, Worcester, the airport picking up five to eight inches through southern Worcester County. And the Cape, actually, five, six, seven, a couple eight-inch amounts that have been coming back. And that's actually where we have 23,000 customers without power as of last check. 
because it's a wet pasty snow. So there have been some outages and some damage that's been reported on the Cape combined with the gusty wind, of course, that they've been experiencing down there too. And I guess uh, uh, Connecticut got hit very hard. Over a foot in some spots. The highest total I think I see right now, let me look right here, 15 and a half, 16 inches in some spots. So yeah, we did have over a foot. It just wasn't focused here in the Bay State. So our reporter Barbara Moran witnessed some pretty severe flooding on Boston's Seaport District. I wonder if that's going to be a concern during high tide tonight, not just on the Seaport, but also on the South Coast, which is dealing with a lot of flooding. Definitely, Lisa. It will again. So, you know, we just came off of a new moon cycle. So tides were astronomically high, uh, even without the wave action. And now you factor in that onshore wind that's continued, there will likely be another round of minor coastal flooding for the next maybe one to two high tide cycles, but it did reach moderate flood stage or close to it in a few spots. So I do anticipate that to be a concern right on through tomorrow afternoon, either side of the tide cycles in those spots. And what's ahead? Uh, I understand it's going to be pretty slick out there tonight because of chilly temperatures temperatures. What happens tonight and then tomorrow? Yeah, so one of my main concerns is actually, you know, where we didn't have a ton of snow or little, if any, there's still a little bit of moisture and the temperatures are going to drop into the 20s tonight. So below freezing means anything that's untreated, even if you just had a trace, um, will become slick. So just keep that in mind. Um, Otherwise, the last of the snow is exiting the Cape right now. I do expect skies to clear. And then tomorrow for Valentine's Day, the sun's back out. We should be about 35 to 40 tomorrow and around 40 on Thursday. So it's a quieter couple days setting up here. Thank you. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce, nice to talk to you. Thanks again. You too, Lisa. Thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xflow, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org summer. And Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Ukrainian soldiers spend many weeks separated from their partners, so when they can get a break from the trenches, loved ones rush to see them near the front lines on what they call the train of love. This meetings. It's amazing moments. I like to see how he's moving, uh, just to see he's breathing. Love in a time of war. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. Love it or loathe it, Valentine's Day is upon us. The so-called Hallmark holiday tomorrow brings its annual run on mushy saccharin cards of the sugar is sweet and so are you variety. But there was a time when people sent and received some pretty vicious Valentines. Historian Susan Benjamin takes us back to the Victorian era through this audio time capsule. In the 1800s, around 1850s, let's say, New Englanders were giving gifts. They had chocolates, they had flowers, and of course, they had cards. These cards were absolutely beautiful, lacy, feathery, just sumptuous cards that were actually invented by a Worcester native whose name was Esther Howland, and she was the mother of the commercialized Valentines. What she didn't know, and so many others didn't know, was something else was looming. And that was called the comic Valentine, or even more to our liking, the vinegar Valentine. It was mean. It was snarky. It was startling. It almost made you cringe. No, I take that back. It did make you cringe. 
I am not attracted by your glitter, for well I know how very bitter my life would be if I should take you for my spouse, Rattlesnake. Oh no, I'd not accept the ring, or evermore t'would prove a sting. Vinegar cards weren't just between people in love or not, as the case may be. It was about people who wanted to get their revenge and they gave them anonymously. These were sent to lawyers and shopkeepers and teachers and doctors who gave you the wrong kind of syrup that made you sick. Here's an example of one that was published in the Fall River Daily Evening News. Your pads and pills may cure our ills, but your homely face gives us the chills. Before you think that these Valentines were some kind of an anomaly, like who would write those? Who would send those? No. According to the Boston Globe, and this is in 1886, one factory alone pumped out 15 million comic Valentines in a measly 5 million sentimental ones. By far, though, the most influential maker of the Vinegar Valentines was a guy named C. Howard. He was from Boston, and he was called the Valentine Man. The most prominent victims of C. Howard's and all those other Valentine's producers were women, and the insults are pretty standard. I mean, there was plenty about the reasons why one person was an old maid and that her nose was too big and nobody ever wanted to talk to her, the usual stuff. But some of it was really kind of startling. Listen to this one. It's horrible. You claim you're good at anything, so come on, show me some proof. Let me see how good you are at jumping off the roof. All the way throughout the history of Vinegar Valentines, people took real moral offense. And they said, joking on Valentine's Day may seem funny, but no, it isn't. Love is actually very serious. In its own way, the New England card-making universe was the one that helped take down Vinegar Valentines, although it took them a really long time. So you have to remember, 1850, we have Esther Howland at her home, living as a single woman with her family, and she came out with this amazing Valentine's Day card with all sorts of lace and all sorts of flowers. It was doing so well that eventually, George C. Whitney decided to buy her company and around nine others. It's not really clear how many of those actually were making the Vinegar Valentines, but what we do know is that his motto was industry, punctuality, and Christianity, and the Vinegar Valentines had to go. Throughout the entire lifespan of Vinegar Valentines, newspapers kept reporting, even into the 1950s, that they were no more. And all through this time, they never went away. You've got more curves than a roller coaster. Your clothes fit like a glove. There's one thing wrong, glamour puss. You've a face only a mother could love. Today, we kind of still have them in this great big envelope that we call social media. Anyway, happy Valentine's Day, no matter how you get your message. And may all your messages be sweet. That's author and historian Susan Benjamin. Our piece was produced by WBUR's Andrea Shea. You can see a few vinegar valentines at WBUR.org.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jatasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jatasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at JITASA.com. From Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking data research skills. Info session on February 21st. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Senate has passed a bill that includes money for Ukraine to fight Vladimir Putin's Russia. President Biden is urging the Republican-led House to do the same. Supporting this bill is standing up to Putin. Opposing it is playing into Putin's hands. The chances the House will support the military aid coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, Congress has been slow to regulate the emerging industry in artificial intelligence, so states have been plowing ahead just the same. President Biden is facing concerns about his age, even from some of his supporters. I'd rather see Biden in the office than Trump. But Biden's getting a little too old to be functioning properly, in my opinion. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump is nearly the same age and often shows it. More on how big an issue this should be for either candidate. Also, the Valentine's bandit who's plastered Portland, Maine with hearts on Valentine's Eve for decades. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A hotter-than-expected inflation report put a stop to a record-setting rally on Wall Street today. The Dow ended the day down more than 500 points. As NPR's David Gurr explains, the latest consumer price index was up by three-tenths of a percent from December to January. Wall Street had adjusted its expectations that the Federal Reserve would be comfortable enough with the progress it's made fighting high inflation to lower rates in March. But the signs were pointing in the right direction. Investors felt confident there would be rate cuts soon. But the latest economic data suggests that delay could last longer. The consumer price index was up 3.1 percent on an annual basis. Stocks slid, and there was a sell-off in bonds. Alphabet, Google's parent company, closed down 1.6 percent. Microsoft and Amazon ended the day down 2.1 percent. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Looking at the numbers, the Dow fell 524 points. The Nasdaq dropped 286 points. The S&P was down 68 points today. It is Election Day in New York's 3rd Congressional District as voters there decide who should replace expelled Congressman George Santos. Desiree DiOrio from member station WSHU reports a blast of heavy snow this morning. Could dampen turnout, though. In a race that hinges on voter turnout, the western suburbs of New York City woke up to some bitter winter weather this morning. Some parts of the 3rd Congressional District got almost five inches of snow. That could hamper turnout in the tight race between Republican Mozzie Pillip and Democrat Tom Swazi. 
The special election to replace George Santos has gained national attention as a bellwether of how this November's elections could reshape the political landscape. If Pillip loses, the thin Republican majority in the House shrinks even further. The House voted last year to expel George Santos over ethical and campaign finance violations. The polls close at 9 p.m. Eastern. For NPR News, I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. And the National Weather Service is reporting today that coastal storm dumped as much as 15 inches of snow on some areas north of New York City and also resulted in more than 1,000 flight cancellations. Storm closed schools in Boston, though a shift in the system sent more snow to the southern part of the state. New York City schools switched to remote learning. Areas in Connecticut and Sussex, New Jersey, saw more than a foot of snow. Over 130,000 homes and businesses were without power at one point in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and West Virginia. After failing to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, it now appears House Republicans will try again. However, it's not clear a second attempt will be any more successful. The vote scheduled for tonight is expected to be tight. After a setback last week, Republicans are trying to make good on their priorities as they criticize the Biden administration's handling of the record number of migrants who have been appearing at the U.S.-Mexico border. You're listening to NPR. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR. Our nor'easter is just about made an exit from the area. Along the coastline, the story was not snow, but flooding. WBUR's Barbara Moran was in Boston Seaport this afternoon and said the flooding there was dramatic. This is the walkway um, by Martins Park from the Children's Museum to the Barking Crab that goes under Seaport Boulevard. So it's completely underwater. I've never seen it this flooded, but um, the rest of the seaport looks okay. None of the roads seem flooded, um, although the, it's, uh, the water is really high. A coastal flood warning expired a few minutes ago at 5 o'clock, but another will go into effect at 1 a.m. ahead of the next high tide. As for the snow, the National Weather Service reports 8 inches fell on Sandwich on Cape Cod. They got 7 inches in Fall River, about 8 inches in Charlton. Many schools canceled classes for today before the snowfall predictions were scaled down. Superintendents say they are having to make the call for a snow day a lot earlier than they used to. WBR's Carrie Young reports it's one of several reasons schools seem to be canceled for less snow lately. Chelsea Public Schools Superintendent Almi Abeda says she likes to make the call on snow days by 2 p.m., the day before a forecasted storm, so families can find childcare. She likes that technology can help her see that big storms are coming, but acknowledges forecasts can change as storms get closer. As much technology as we have in the world and that we're relying on, Mother Nature has a mind of her own. And that's where I think sometimes it gets a little fuzzy. She says another factor is that school transportation is more complicated these days. Even if big yellow school buses can traverse main roads, school leaders also have to think about smaller school vans that sometimes have to pick kids up from back roads. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The Healy administration says it's deeply disappointed in the federal government's refusal to declare a major disaster in three counties that were hit with floods last fall. A flash flood in Worcester, Bristol, and Hamden counties in September caused severe damage to hundreds of homes and businesses, washed out roads, and caused streets and sidewalks to buckle. 
but federal officials say the damage was not severe enough to require federal assistance. The governor plans to appeal. Could be pretty slick on the roads tonight as temperatures fall. Should drop to the mid-20s overnight, causing wet roads to turn icy. Skies should start to clear tonight. Some clouds early tomorrow, then eventually sunshine, windy. Highs just about freezing tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. Almost freezing out there right now. 33 degrees in Boston at 507. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Four trials remain on the docket for former President Donald Trump. We will catch up on where they stand in a moment. But first, the U.S. Senate pulled an all-nighter last night. And just after 5 o'clock this morning, finally passed a foreign aid package that would send billions to Ukraine. A few hours later, at the White House, President Biden urged the House to do the same. This bipartisan bill sends a clear message to Ukrainians and to our partners and to our allies around the world. America can be trusted. America can be relied upon. And America stands up for freedom. We stand strong for our allies. We never bow down to anyone, and certainly not to Vladimir Putin. Well, leading work on this bill for months is our next guest, Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy. Senator Murphy, welcome. Thanks for having me. In the end, 22 Republicans voted with most Democrats to pass this bill. What was the key in getting those Republicans to vote yes? Well, ultimately, I think they understand that the state of the world is at stake. I just don't think it's hyperbolic to talk about the stakes being nothing less than potentially World War III, because if Vladimir Putin owns Ukraine, there is a real possibility he will move on to a NATO country that would drag the United States into a direct confrontation with Russia. And China would also uh, start to move faster in their plans to take over smaller neighboring nations, potentially drawing the United States into a direct conflict with China. So in the end, Republicans in the Senate, just enough of them, uh, saw those stakes as being serious enough to drop their prior objections and support this funding. The question is whether the Speaker of the House uh, will bring this for a vote. I think it has the votes in the House. I'm sure it has the votes in the House to pass if he brings it up, and that's what we will all be waiting for in the coming days and weeks. Well, let's stay there for a minute, because as you note, the Speaker, Mike Johnson, does not sound inclined to schedule a vote in the House. He says the House will not pass a foreign aid bill unless it includes border provisions. Do you have any reason to doubt he means it? Well, it's really curious to me because that's what he said a few months ago. And so we went to work in the Senate. We actually spent four months writing and uh, coming to a compromise on a bipartisan border deal that gave the president brand new powers to control the number of people who are crossing at the border. We did that because that's what Republicans in the Senate and the House told us that they needed in order to pass this bill. But at the last minute, uh, Donald Trump opposed that compromise. He wants chaos at the border. And Republicans abandoned that compromise, voted for the Ukraine bill without the border provisions attached. And now we hear that Speaker Johnson, having led the fight to kill the border, 
provisions that were supported by both Republicans and Democrats now is complaining that the bill doesn't have border provisions. It's a very bizarre situation to find ourselves in. If he wanted a bill with border provisions, that he should have supported the bipartisan border security bill. Okay, okay, but we are, forgive me, we are where we are. If if the House doesn't take this up, as the Speaker says they're not going to, what is plan B? That really is a question for Republicans. Um, you know, we have followed their playbook when they told us that they needed these, this, this border bill attached to the Ukraine bill. We did that. Uh, if they are not prepared to take this bipartisan Senate compromise, I think we'll have to listen to House Republicans as to what comes next. The problem is we don't have time. Uh, Ukraine is literally running out of ammunition as we speak. The, the battle lines are going to move pretty quickly this spring if funding isn't approved in the next 30 days. Having spent all these months on this, are you going to be working the phone to Republicans in the House? Is there any role for you there? I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Again, I, my utility as is, is part of this process was, was to try to find a bipartisan path forward on the border. If that's what Republicans in the House want, then sign me up. I just think I've come to the conclusion that Republicans like to complain about the border but actually don't want to solve it in the end. That's, that's quite something to say. I mean, I, I suppose that prompts me to ask a bigger question. Does it feel like all the negotiating all these months was worth it? Like, what's the point of working across the aisle in the Senate if you pass a bill and then it goes to the House and dies? Well, I certainly haven't accepted that this bill is going to die. Um, it may be that a different version of it passes the House of Representatives. But I think by passing this Ukraine funding bill with 70 bipartisan votes, that's a pretty big bipartisan majority in the Senate. We put some real pressure on the House to take this bill or a bill that looks like it uh, up. Um, I am uh, upset, heartbroken, really, at the fact that we spent all this time coming up with a solution to our southern border, which is a real problem. We just can't handle 10,000 people crossing on a day, and that it was so similarly rejected by Republicans. I do believe, ultimately, that Republicans have kind of become addicted to the issue of border as a political issue. They don't really want to solve it, and when confronted with an opportunity to, to, to do it, just can't get it over the finish line. Um, but I don't think it was all for naught. I think ultimately our attempt at passing this border bill um, got Republicans to the point where they eventually supported a clean Ukraine funding bill. And my hope is that the House will do the same. And just one more to circle back to Ukraine. Is there other help the United States can offer? Are there other things the U.S. can do, can share, if this money is not forthcoming and forthcoming fast? Not that we'll help Ukraine win this war. Uh, I mean, ultimately, the administration has run out of tricks up its sleeve. Um, we can't transfer more of our own equipment without seriously undermining our own security. So there really is not a plan B. Europe doesn't have the equipment that the United States does. Um, this war cannot be won uh, without the United States being at the table. It cannot be won without a new supplemental appropriation made by Congress. That's plan A, B, and mm. C right now. We've got to get this done. That is Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. Senator, thanks for your time. Thank you. 
This week, we could get a better sense of timing for the trials looming for former President Donald Trump in Georgia, New York, Florida, as well as here in Washington, D.C. Key decisions are up in the air for four cases against him. We're joined now by NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, who's here to get us up to speed on what we need to know about these cases. Hi, Domenico. Hey, Juana. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Okay, I want to start in Georgia, where former President Trump's team wants to disqualify the prosecutor in the election interference case against him in that state. A judge set a hearing for Thursday. What impact could that have on the case as well as the timeline there? Yeah, I mean, this could have a big effect on when or if the trial happens at all. But if the prosecutor, Fonnie Willis, is disqualified, it could throw a wrench into this whole case. I mean, a new prosecutor would have to be appointed if one is appointed at all. You know, defense attorneys said Willis was in a romantic relationship with one of the prosecutors working for her, Nathan Wade. Willis acknowledged the relationship and the defense lawyers claimed it's a conflict of interest, that she had financially benefited from this. Basically, they argue that because Wade was being paid by the DA's office, and sometimes paid for them to go on vacation too, then that's the financial benefit. He says that's ridiculous, and sometimes she paid too. Look, the point of all of this, though, is that it's become really muddy in a case that had been seen as one of the strongest against Trump, because remember, he's on tape saying that he wanted to, quote, find votes to overturn the results of the election there. Right. And in the state of New York, there is another state criminal case, and we might get a timetable there too. If you could just remind us what that case involves and what is at stake there. This is the case involving hush money to an adult film actress, Stormy Daniels, and a former Playboy playmate, Karen McDougal, wanting them to stay silent about alleged affairs Trump had with them. What the state is charging him with, essentially, is falsifying business records to cover up those payments. We haven't heard much about this case for months, but the judge could set a trial date this week. It's currently scheduled for March 25th, so we'll see if that holds or if it gets delayed. And Trump's lawyer says Trump is planning to show up at the courthouse in New York on Thursday. And we know every time he does that, he doesn't go quietly, either in court or outside, and makes it political. And these two state cases are important because even if Trump wins the presidency again, he's not going to be able to dismiss these cases in the way that he could try to dismiss the federal ones by putting pressure on the head of the Justice Department, for example. Okay, let's turn to those federal cases now. The former president is facing criminal charges related to the January 6th insurrection and then separately for taking and then not returning classified documents. Mm -hmm. Remind us, if you can, what's been happening there. Yeah, well, in Florida, the judge in that case uh, held a hearing on Monday about what kind of access the defense would have uh, to classified material. And that's part of what makes this case complicated is that it's about classified documents and there are some very sensitive issues involved with that. This week, the hearing was about how much of that material Trump's team can have access to in preparation for trial. Another question is whether the government's witness list can be made public. The prosecution says that they're nervous about witnesses being threatened, for example. This case has just gotten held up by all kinds of motions and pushback from both sides. That means the current court date of May 20th for when a trial uh, is supposed to start could very well be pushed back too, which is part of the Trump legal strategy, which I call the three Ds, dismiss, delay, distract. Okay, and as far as the January 6th case goes, the Supreme Court has a big decision looming about whether that one even goes forward at all, if I understand correctly. 
Right. And, you know, Trump's team has had a lot of success with trying to delay things, as we said. But this case, the January 6th insurrection case, he took a pretty big blow last week because a three-judge panel unanimously said that he does not have immunity from prosecution for actions taken while he was president. Trump then appealed that to the Supreme Court yesterday. His defense team went straight to politics on this in their filing, saying, quote, a months-long criminal trial of President Trump at the height of election season will radically disrupt President Trump's ability to campaign against President Biden. If the Supreme Court rules against him, if it doesn't take up the case or agrees with the lower court, then that means we could actually see a trial before people go to the polls in November. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, is there a double standard on age for Joe Biden and Donald Trump? That's coming up in the next half hour on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. And Donfoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project. At house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. The Dow and S&P both fell about one and four-tenths of a percent today on Wall Street. It was the Dow's worst day since last March. NASDAQ also gave up ground. It dropped one and eight-tenths of a percent. Massachusetts online sports bettors who use the WinBet app will have to withdraw their money from their accounts in the next month. The company's winding down its online operations and is no longer accepting online wagers here. WinBet says this has no impact on in-person sports betting at Encore and Everett. WinBet, an online sports betting company, better announced plans to leave the state last month. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The snowstorm that was a non-event for some, the main event for others, depending on geography, is moving out to the Boston area. And parts north got little, if any, accumulation. Worcester County got a lot. Dudley got about nine inches of snow. South Coast and Cape and Islands got hard hit as well with high winds. Storms, as we said, are moving out this evening. Tonight should be cold, only in the mid-20s. Tomorrow gradually turning sunny, about 32 degrees for a high on Valentine's Day. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Congress has been slow to regulate the emerging industry of artificial intelligence, but turns out states have been plowing ahead. State lawmakers worry about things like the spread of fake AI images of people without their consent. They are proposing and passing laws dealing with AI in elections, in healthcare, and beyond. NPR's Ryland Barton covers state trends and has been keeping an eye on what is going on across the country. He joins me now from Louisville. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. So this is fascinating, actually, that it's at the state level, not Congress, that we see lawmakers taking the first cracks at trying to regulate AI. Why? Yeah. So the federal government is definitely interested in AI. Congress has held committee hearings. A bipartisan group of lawmakers created a kind of wish list of what they want an AI framework to look like last year. But Congress is slow to act on just about anything these days. That's where the states come in. And they can sometimes take action a little bit faster. One of the biggest areas of interest is these non-consensual deep fakes of people, Mm -hmm. which has raised even more alarms after AI generated nude images of Taylor Swift spread throughout the Internet last month. These so-called nudified images are happening to non-celebrities, too. And advocates say many current laws don't adequately protect people. Here's Courtney Curtis with the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council. She's talking to a legislative committee earlier this year about weaknesses in the law. So because of the way it's currently written, if you just take someone's image off of their social media and create either a nudified or deep fake image, We're just not currently covering it. And obviously, this is a problem that is of increasing relevance. So some states have already taken a swing at it. California and Illinois passed laws last year allowing people to sue those who create images using their likenesses. Texas and Minnesota make it a crime punishable with fines and prison time. Hmm. States are starting to get ideas from each other. But at this point, there's still this patchwork of how they're all dealing with it. Tell me more about how this works for people in the public eye, like how AI is is being used right now to manipulate voices, images of political figures. How are states thinking about that? Yeah, so this is the area that's already had the most movement in legislatures. A lot of this is because the presidential election is looming this year. There's a lot of worries about how these politically charged deep fakes are spreading throughout the country. Uh, Last year, California, Texas, and Washington all passed laws either totally banning or requiring disclosure if campaign materials use artificially manipulated sound or images, but they do it in different ways. So in California, they don't explicitly mention AI. Instead, it restricts deceptive media within 60 days of an election, and it allows those harmed to seek civil damages. Texas went a step further and created a criminal penalty, though it's just a misdemeanor, and that applies to deepfakes targeting candidates. Well, and I'm thinking this has been in the headlines just in recent days because of that robocall that went out. This was mimicking um, President Biden's voice during the New Hampshire primary and had him, allegedly him, discouraging voters from coming to the polls. Right. And so it's still unclear if that voice was generated from AI, but that incident prompted at least a dozen more states across the nation to start considering bans on using AI-generated sound and images in political ads. Just last week, the feds did take some action. It wasn't in Congress, but the Federal Communications Commission can now fine companies that use AI-generated voices in robocalls. But the ACLU has expressed concern over regulating generated political content, They say that the rules run the risk of infringing on satire, parody, and other free speech protected content. 
Such an interesting balance that we are trying to strike with all this. I mean, when we're talking about AI, just big picture, it's not just deep fakes uh, and that type of thing that's the concern. What, what else is out there that states are working on? So one big worry is what happens when AI is used to make big, important decisions on things like who a bank gives a loan to, uh, who gets priority for medical care, uh, who can get insurance. AI can be incredibly helpful in speeding up those decisions, crunching those numbers. But there's also evidence that algorithms discriminate against people of color when getting home loans, hiring, and in the criminal justice system. So Illinois, California, Vermont, and Virginia have all proposed bills to try and target AI-based discrimination. And we expect other states to follow as well as they look for strategies to regulate the emerging technology. NPR's Ryland Barton reporting from Louisville. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mary Louise. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Something special happens the night before Valentine's Day in Portland, Maine. Children and adults alike go to bed knowing that while they are sleeping, the Valentine's Bandit will strike covering doorways, windows, and telephone poles across the city in bright red paper hearts. Anissa Vitsa has the story. If you live in Portland, you know about the Valentine's Bandit. It's sort of like Portland's version of like the Easter Bunny, but just for Valentine's Day. Stella Del Turgo grew up in Portland. She says the tradition feels fantastical. The whole city is absolutely plastered with hearts. And you get to walk around on Valentine's Day and feel like you're in a different little world. Add that the Valentine's Bandit managed to do this anonymously for over 45 years, and you have yourself a local legend. The Valentine Bandit. The Valentine Bandit. Placing red hearts big and small. The closest thing we may have to a masked superhero. But this year, Valentine's is bittersweet for Portland. Last April, the man behind the Valentine's Bandit tradition passed away suddenly. His friends and family decided to reveal his identity. Kevin Farman didn't work alone, but he secretly led a group of people in putting up the hearts for decades. The team also put up huge banners, hanging off of buildings several stories in the air, dangling from construction cranes, and atop an old military fort in the middle of Casco Bay, accessible only by boat. I don't know how many times he slipped and fell on the ice, dropped his iPhone off of the First Parish Church steeple. Kevin's wife, Patty Urban, says the stunt was difficult to pull off each year. I used to get so worried about him, I never would sleep that night. Peter Bissell was a good friend of Kevin's for 15 years, but he had no idea that Kevin was the bandit. I found out after he died, and it was so fitting, though. He was a very giving person. But I I don't think anybody knew besides his family and the people that he enlisted to help him. Kevin's wife, Patty, says she thinks she understands why he did it. He loved Portland. He loved his community. And it was just, you know, Portland's gift. It's a gift. It's clear the city loves the bandit back. Businesses around here often save the hearts, keeping a handful tucked inside shop windows year-round. I think there's something over here. Oh, there's one. I walked around Portland's old port with Sierra Farman. That's Kevin's daughter. We found a few of her father's hearts from last year. There's another. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They're literally everywhere. If you start like paying attention, they're everywhere. As for what will happen tomorrow on Valentine's Day, well, it seems that everyone has faith in the magical qualities of the Valentine's Bandit. I'm pretty sure that we're going to see some hearts. It's too ubiquitous with Portland to just fall by the wayside. Sierra says she knows the hearts will happen tonight. 
but she's being coy about who exactly will lead the charge. Sierra plans to keep her father's legacy alive beyond the hearts. She's starting a foundation with her mom in his honor to raise money for local causes that Kevin cared about. For NPR News, I'm Anissa Vitsa in Portland, Maine. This is NPR News. Taking the pee out of wastewater pollution on Cape Cod, coming up at 5.50 here at 90.9 WBUR. Celtics are on the road tonight to meet up with the Brooklyn Nets, 7.30 start time. Tonight, the Bruins skate against Tampa Bay at the Garden at 7 o'clock. Bruins forward Brad Marchand is expected to take the ice for his 1,000th NHL game. As the Bees take on Tampa Bay, Marchand has spent his entire career in Boston. Bruins will play tribute to him uh, just before next Monday's matinee at the Garden. This is 90.9 WBUR, 33 degrees in Boston at 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. Welchforbes.com. Ukrainian soldiers spend many weeks separated from their partners, so when they can get a break from the trenches, loved ones rush to see them near the front lines on what they call the train of love. This meetings, it's amazing moments. I like to see how he's moving, uh, just to see he's breathing. Love in a time of war, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. The White House is repeating a warning to Israel to not move forward with an offensive in the crowded southern Gaza city of Rafah without a plan to get civilians out of the way. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. We have consistently conveyed uh, our concerns uh, to our Israeli counterparts, including the prime minister, uh, about moving forward uh, in Rafa in a major way without due consideration of civilians. And we have consistently conveyed privately and publicly, but privately too, uh, our concerns about the need to continue to look for ways to reduce civilian casualties. As the president said yesterday, there's been too many. Rafa is teeming with more than a million displaced people driven there because of the fighting elsewhere in Gaza. Israel says the military is making plans to evacuate Palestinian civilians, but aid agencies say, uh, say there is nowhere to go. France has drafted a proposal to end hostilities between Israel and Iran-backed Hezbollah forces in Lebanon, NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. The three-step plan envisages a 10-day de-escalation process culminating in border negotiations. Israeli officials say the proposal is being evaluated in Jerusalem. It entails withdrawing Hezbollah's elite units six miles from the Lebanese-Israel border with the goal of ending fighting between Hezbollah and Israel. The hostilities running parallel to the Gaza war have killed and injured civilians and are fueling concern over an all-out confrontation. France has historical ties with Lebanon. It has 20,000 citizens in the country and some 800 troops as part of a UN peacekeeping force there. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Voting on the House floor is expected to get underway in about an hour on a second attempt to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the crisis at the southern border with Mexico. House Republicans failed to secure enough votes to impeach him last week. This is NPR.
President Biden is calling on House Republicans to immediately vote on that $95 billion military aid package the Senate passed this morning. The central focus of the bill is Ukraine. It provides $60 billion for the fight against Russia. Speaking at the White House today, Biden said opposing it would play into Putin's hands. Hardline House Republicans aligned with former President Donald Trump opposed the bill. The leader of the Balt- of a Baltic nation, a NATO member Estonia, officially a wanted person in Russia, and NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow. The Estonia leader is not alone. Russia issued the warrant for Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kallis over her support for removing Soviet-era World War II monuments erected back when the Baltic nation was still part of the USSR. The warrant was uncovered amid an analysis scrape of the Russian Interior Ministry's wanted database by the independent news website Mediazona. Mediazona found similar warrants for scores of other less prominent officials from Baltic countries. Amid the war in Ukraine, Russia has enacted a slew of new laws criminalizing the rehabilitation of Nazism, including crimes for the desecration of World War II monuments, all part of a wider bid to falsely link the USSR's victory over fascist Germany to Russia's current invasion of its neighbor. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. On Wall Street, stocks fell sharply today with all three major indexes down more than one and a quarter percent after the government, after the government issued a worse than expected inflation report. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Weather Service says about nine inches of snow fell on Martha's Vineyard today. Five inches fell in Shrewsbury. But what was supposed to be a major winter storm with significant snow in Boston will instead leave the city with just about nothing. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports on how this storm was a tricky one for forecasters. There were predictions yesterday of up to a foot of snow for Boston and Worcester in what was supposed to be the biggest nor'easter in two years. Schools were closed and city halls shut down. Residents told to stay home. But today, many folks are asking, what storm? I would be surprised if we see much more than an inch. Meteorologist Christy Smith with the National Weather Service says all the data yesterday pointed to heavy snow from Springfield to Boston. But then the whole system shifted south. It buried parts of Connecticut with up to 15 inches, but in greater Boston, just a reminder that weather forecasting can be an inexact science. We never know how much snow a storm's going to produce until it falls. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. As you heard, most of Massachusetts was spared a heavy snowfall, but the coast was battered by high tides and flooding, and that includes in Marshfield. There was about two feet of flooding in some neighborhoods by the ocean. Town Administrator Michael Moresco says some waves this afternoon were almost as high as the high houses along the seawall. You know, living by the ocean's beautiful 364 days a year. It's that one day that it's bad. Let's hope that this is the bad day. Avoid any down wires, call 911 and they'll take care of it. Don't wade through deep water. Stay away from the waves. You know, normal precautionary measures. The National Weather Service coastal flood warning expired about 30 minutes ago. There will be a lower grade advisory in effect overnight tonight between 1 and 4 a.m. Right now, there are about 23,000 power customers without electricity statewide. The majority of those are on Cape Cod. Both of Massachusetts U.S. Senators voted for the $95 billion foreign aid package that includes support for Israel, Gaza, and Taiwan, as well as Ukraine. It won approval in the Senate early this morning. Senator Elizabeth Warren calls congressional support for Ukraine more urgent than ever after former President Donald Trump threatened to abandon NATO. Senator Ed Markey says the bill will provide humanitarian aid in places where it's desperately needed. The bill now moves on to the House. The forecast is coming up. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Could be pretty slick on the roads tonight as temperatures fall 33 degrees right now. Should make it all the way down to the mid-20s overnight, causing wet roads to turn icy. Skies should start to clear tonight. Early morning clouds tomorrow, then eventually some sunshine. Windy, just about freezing for a high. Thursday, the sun shines back. Temperatures about 30 degrees. It's 537. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On June 14th, Donald Trump will turn 78 years old. Joe Biden turned 81 in November. Whether they like it or not, age, mental acuity, and physical fitness are issues dominating the 2024 presidential election cycle. Though the two men were born fewer than four years apart, voters have consistently expressed more concern about Biden's age than Trump's. So we've invited NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith and NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick to come explain why. Welcome, you two. Thank you. Hey, Mary Louise. All right, Tam, I'm going to throw the first few questions your way. I mean, we're here, we're talking about age again because of what special counsel Robert Hur wrote in his report uh, investigating President Biden and his retention of classified documents. Open us up with the question of do voters care about Biden's age? Like how much of an issue is this? Voters bring it up to us unprompted all the time. And there's data to back it up. There's a January poll from NBC News that found three quarters of those surveyed had major or moderate concerns about President Biden's mental and physical fitness for a second term. That same poll found it was more like 50 percent of those surveyed who had the same concerns about Trump. If you look at the partisan breakdown, though, it's very interesting. Republicans have no concerns about Trump. They feel very positive about him. Take Delbert Leisure, who my colleague Danielle Kurtzleben interviewed in South Carolina. I mean, he'll do a rally here for an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, whatever it is. I mean, I'm thinking he can run a marathon. But on the Democratic side, voters have, I guess you'd call it a far more realistic picture of Biden. James Parker was interviewed by my colleague Ashley Lopez. He was in New Hampshire, went out of his way to write in President Biden on the New Hampshire ballot. And yet this is what he had to say about the president. I'd rather see Biden in the office than Trump. But Biden's getting a little old, too old to be, you know, functioning properly, in my opinion. About half of Democratic voters in that NBC survey said that they had concerns about Biden's age. Tim, bring in your personal experience. You have reported on, you've tracked both these men, what, for the entire Trump presidency and now day in, day out the last three years you've covered President Biden. What what has been your experience? 
President Biden does have an increasingly stiff gait. Um, he's now taking the short stairs into Air Force One. He's had a couple of notable physical spills. And there are the recurring issues of saying the wrong names uh, of world leaders, for instance. But I also traveled with him to Israel on a 31-hour trip shortly after the Hamas attacks. He came back on Air Force One well over 20 hours into the trip and took questions at length and in great detail about the situation in the Middle East. He was energized about a call he had just completed uh, with Egypt's president. Huh. And then what about Trump? You know, he hasn't had any notable public tumbles, but during his presidency, he had moments where he looked like he was having some difficulty going down ramps or another time he grabbed a water glass with two hands. And of course, his speeches ramble in an epic fashion. He speaks in the shorthand of conspiracy theories. He also mixes up names. Is Biden being held to a different standard than Trump when it comes to age? What I will say is that the American people these days see a lot more of President Biden than they do of former President Trump, because President Biden is president. Every time he travels, goes up and down the stairs, walks with that stiff gate to Marine One, there's video. Every time he gives a speech, it's televised. And although it may not feel like it, Americans simply are not consuming as much Trump content as they used to. Because he's a former president. Of course, this past weekend, he held a rally where he said that he would tell Russia to go ahead and attack a NATO ally if they didn't invest enough in their own defense. And that really overshadowed Biden's bad news cycle. Let me turn the different standard question to you, David. Does the media apply a double standard when it comes to talking about Biden and Trump and their age? I think it is fair in the question when you have somebody in his 80s as president to say, is this person rightfully fit to preside over government. Trump gets essentially a pass. I mean, for the last almost nine years since he made clear he was running for president back in 2015, he was known for saying outrageous things and sometimes things that were not only outrageous, but just untethered from reality. People didn't pigeonhole that as uh, senile. I do think there's a way in which Biden has been a gaffe machine when he ran for office. And I remember this in 1988 for the first time for president. You know, it was as though his running mate was somebody named gaffe, Biden gaffe. They were together. Now it's seen as an act of senility in a sense of a part of the sort of overwhelmingly verbose nature of who he is. And yet, I do think it's legitimate for reporters to focus on it. I just think not necessarily to the detriment of all the other ways in which these two former presidents' records can be compared. Um, Speak for a moment, David, to media on the conservative side of the spectrum. Fox News. How do they play into this narrative that Trump is fine, Biden's too old to be president? They're not just playing into it. They're writing that narrative and they're doing it on an almost nightly or hourly basis. Uh, Certainly, Biden has his defenders. But I think what Fox has done is trying to play defense for Trump and for the controversy, particularly the legal perils that he faces as a result of his own actions, uh, whether or not they prove to be criminal. By going on the offense against Biden and doing it on this effort, you see time and again the question raised of Biden's fitness, his senility, his infirmity, uh, and the idea that this is a constant question. Perhaps the perfect encapsulation of that was a moment last November where Lucas Tomlinson, a Fox News correspondent who was traveling with Biden in uh, Martha's Vineyard, said effectively, Biden can't escape uh, questions about his age. And then you heard Biden being confronted by a question. Mr. President, are you too old to be running for re-election? Not disclosing that he, Lucas Tomlinson of Fox News, had been the person to pose the question. 
So Fox was essentially saying this is an inescapable question for the president because we keep posing it to him, but we're not going to tell you we're the ones doing that. Let's give Trump and Biden the last word here. Tim, how do when they get asked about this, we've heard a little bit of how Biden responds, but he, he also likes he likes to joke about his age, right? He's trying to make light of it. Yeah, he absolutely makes jokes about it on a regular basis uh, in a way to try to disarm the issue. And when he gets serious about it, he simply says, watch me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I'm doing every day. Would I be able to do this if I wasn't okay? And then Trump, he gets asked about this less, but how does he handle it? You know, it's interesting. Um, there has been a lot of focus on his mental state by uh, his rival, Nikki Haley, who is still running in the Republican primary. And so President Trump, at a, at a rally I recently covered, actually boasted about a cognitive test. I took a cognitive test my doctor gave me. I said, give me a cognitive test just so we can, you know, because you know what the standards were. And I aced it. I also took one when I was in. But I also took one when I was in the White House. No, I'll let you know when I go bad. I really think this is far from the first time Trump has boasted about his health like this. Um, And I think it is safe to say that we are going to continue having versions of this conversation all the way through November. That is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith and NPR's media correspondent David Folk and Flick. Thanks, you two. You're welcome. You bet. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Joanne Foley, and please note that this story deals with the death of a child. In 1980, Foley was a new nurse at an Oregon hospital. She was working the night shift in the maternity ward when a baby girl was born with a severe congenital disorder. She was expected to die soon. As Foley had seen in similar cases, a baby in this condition, where nothing could be done, was often placed in a bassinet and received minimal attention until they died. But Foley says the night shift supervisor, a woman named Nancy Allspatch, had a different approach. She would go into the nursery multiple times through the shift and hold that baby, and she held her tight, and she put her face right down next to the baby, and she talked to her, and she even fed her a bottle and rocked her in the big rocking chair, and she treated that baby as though she were her own. And I was so impressed with the fact that Nancy did that. The rest of us kind of didn't know what to do, and I always wished that I could tell that mom or that the mom would know that Nancy did not let that baby leave this world without knowing the basic need of human touch and genuine love. And what I would want to say is I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what you went through, not only because of what you went through, but because of where we were in the medical world then and what we didn't know that we know now. 
And I am so grateful to Nancy Allspatch for teaching me that it goes beyond what's in the medical books and, and what's in the doctor's orders. There were other instances in my career when I dealt with babies who died or children who died, and I never forgot the importance of touching and being close to the baby or the child and also close to the parents. It doesn't matter um, anything beyond that moment and in that moment, what they need is compassion. And Nancy taught me that. Joanne Foley of Florence, Montana. She says that after she left the hospital, she wrote to Allspatch to let her know how much her compassion affected her. Joanne and Nancy continued to stay in touch until Allspatch died. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, whose scientists work to lay the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, which are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, new guidance on isolating after testing positive for COVID. That's coming up on WBUR. Celtics are on the road tonight to meet up with the Brooklyn Nets. 7.30 start time. Boston Bruins host Tampa Bay Lightning tonight. It'll be forward Brad Marchand's 1,000th game, all of them in a Bruins uniform. Marchand is the eighth player in B's history to skate in 1,000 or more games. The team will recognize him before next Monday's game at the Garden. And Celtic star forward Jason Tatum is giving $1 million so people in his hometown of St. Louis can afford down payments on homes. The money will be contributed over three to five years. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead H&H as Conductor Laureate. Next weekend at Symphony Hall. Visit HandelandHyden.org. And La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at LaCuchara.com. Skies are starting to clear in some areas around Boston. Still some snowfall south of Boston, especially on Cape Cod. Overnight lows about 27 tonight. Then for tomorrow, clouds early, sunshine eventually on Valentine's Day. Temperatures in the low to mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. 33 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.52. You follow the news every day on WBUR. But how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR. Last year, Massachusetts passed new regulations that forced Cape Cod communities to clean up their wastewater pollution. Now those communities are spending billions to install sewers and upgrade septic systems. But what if there was a less expensive solution? Some say there is one. It's called urine diversion, or even better, pea cycling. In the second part of our series on Cape Cod's water pollution, WBUR's Barbara Moran takes us to Falmouth. Hi, I'm Barbara. Nice to meet you. This is amazing. Oh, thank you. Earl Barnhart lives in a beautiful house in Falmouth with his wife, Hilda Menge. There's a huge vegetable garden and fruit trees. Oh, there's chickens. Oh, it's like a country club for the chickens. (laughs) But I'm not here to see the chickens. I'm here to see the bathroom, because Barnhart and Menge are known on Cape Cod as the power couple of pea cycling. Yes, they recycle their urine. All those luscious vegetables grown on what Barnhart calls liquid gold. In nature, you have plants and animals, and the animals eat the plants, and the waste from the animals go back to the plants, and the nutrients go round and round. Uh, Humans don't do that at all. What most humans in Falmouth do is use septic tanks, which means all those nutrients leach into local bays and ponds, where they feed algae and invasive plants. The plants grow like crazy, sucking up oxygen in the water, killing fish, and turning the bottom to muck. To solve that problem, Falmouth had a plan. So we learned that Falmouth, our town, was going to spend $600 million over 40 years and build as many sewers as they could in that time. And that's a huge amount of money for a town of 30,000 people. So we started studying alternatives to sewers. Barnhart and Menge learned that most of the problem comes from pee. And that if you could divert the urine only, you could divert 80% of the nitrogen that's causing the trouble. So they did. Menge says they bought urine-diverting toilets for their home. Okay, so you're going to show me um, one of these toilets. Yes. Okay. Okay, so here we are in the bathroom. It looks like a normal toilet. Exactly. So then you sit on it and sort of the chute opens at the back and that's where the poo goes. I see. And then there's like a little chute. For the urine in the front. Ah. And since everybody is pretty much the same, you don't have to think about how I'm going to sit to make this work. It never fails. Never fails? I went back to find out. I'm going to shut the door here. Okay, I'm actually going to use this toilet. Spoiler I am not going to tape this, but I will give a report back after. Stand by for the report. Okay, well, overall, that was pretty anticlimactic. So I just peed. The pee went down where it was supposed to go, and that was that. I'm not the only one intrigued by this whole pea cycling system. My name is Brian Baumgartel. I'm the director of the Massachusetts Alternative Septic System Test Center. Baumgartel is an expert on the Cape's wastewater woes, and his group is doing a whole research project on pea cycling. He says we're thinking about pea all wrong. Well, I would argue that wastewater is a resource. (laughs) I mean, yes, it's got stuff in it that we don't necessarily like because it might make us sick. Um, But um, nitrogen is one of the things that we utilize for fertilizer. Baumgartel says recycling pea could help curb the demand for synthetic fertilizer. And there are other pros to pea cycling. It's relatively cheap compared to sewers or advanced septic. 
And if you don't want to sprinkle your tinkle on your flower bed, there's a small cost to get your urine hauled away. Or for less than a hundred bucks, you can get a portable urinal called a cubie. And people could start pee cycling quickly without having to wait decades for sewers. Now, I think there's a lot of advantages. I don't know that it's the sort of end solution for the wastewater problem. Maybe it is for some folks. And folks are interested. Barnhart and Mengay host regular open houses to teach people about pea cycling. One day last fall, more than a dozen people showed up. Yeah, we're going to show you what, how our house is set up uh, in two groups, and then we'll come back out and talk some more. A group follows Mengay into the bathroom and downstairs to see the storage tanks. One guy on the tour, Rob Pacheco of Falmouth, thought it was interesting, but maybe not for his house right now. I think that uh, it's something that we need to adopt the idea of, you know, in general. Uh, just not sure of how to install everything. <laughs> Toby and Rich Stomberg were more enthusiastic. They have a house in Eastham, which has the same water problems as the rest of the Cape. And it's a, such an amazing solution. So for us, it's just taking the time to get it going in our own home. And then if that spreads to our neighbors, well, that would be really nice. Yeah, I'd point out, too, that we have solar panels on our roof, and we got lots of money back from the state mm -hmm. and government that really made it easy for us to do that. And the government is not supporting this. That might change, at least in Falmouth. In November, the town approved funding to explore a urine diversion pilot project for at least 50 homes. If the town votes to move forward on the full project this spring, it'll be the first program of its kind in the country. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. This project was produced in collaboration with Scientific American. You can see its video on Cape Cod's water problems at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Coming to WBUR City Space this Friday, a Valentine's Day edition of the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst, told live by the adults who went through it. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Watch out on the roads tonight, and the sidewalks, too, could be pretty slick as temperatures fall. Right now, they're expected to fall to the mid-20s overnight tonight, causing wet roads to turn icy. Skies should start to clear eventually tonight. A few clouds early tomorrow, then sunshine later in the day. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app 
or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. CDC guidelines are changing on COVID. The Centers for Disease Control says that if you test positive for COVID-19, you no longer have to isolate for five days. Instead, you can return to your regular routine after one day without a fever. What this might mean for the potential spread of COVID coming up, it's Thursday, February 8th, and this is All Things Considered. Make that Tuesday, February 13th. Also ahead, the Republican Party has grown a lot more enamored of Russia in recent years. Ironically, like the left of a previous generation, they've imagined that a better ideal version of our society exists in Russia. Russia's appeal to the American right, not likely what former Republican President Ronald Reagan could have imagined. And people on the great blue hill south of Boston make the most of a snow day today in a place without a lot of new snow. Also, vinegar valentines. They were pretty nasty back in the Victorian era. It's 601. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is calling on House Republicans to get behind a $93.5 billion supplemental spending bill that would include $60 billion in aid for Ukraine, though that appears unlikely. Biden warning today opposing the measure will play into Putin's hands. Over as NPR's Eric McDaniel reports, some GOP lawmakers do not seem concerned. A majority of Senate Republicans didn't back this bill. It was supposed to be bipartisan. It was something Senate Minority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell obviously cared a lot about. But for the senators more closely aligned with GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump's sort of anti-alliance, America first wing of the party, this is just not the kind of foreign commitment that makes sense to them. House Speaker Mike Johnson has also cast doubt on the future of the bill in the lower chamber, saying lawmakers there may be prepared to go their own way. The bill would also contain aid for Israel and Taiwan. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is trying to reassure an American jailed in Russia the case is high on the U.S. agenda. As NPR's Michelle Kelman explains, Russia has not accepted a deal the U.S. proposed to win Paul Whelan's release. Secretary Blinken was speaking at a forum on hostage diplomacy when he mentioned his latest phone call with Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine who's been in Russian custody since December 2018. Our intensive efforts to bring Paul home continue every single day. And they will, until he and Evan Gerskovitz and every other American wrongfully detained is back with their loved ones. Gershkovich is a Wall Street Journal reporter who was arrested in Russia last year. The State Department says it made a significant offer to try to win the release of both men, but that was rejected by Russia. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Flight attendants from a number of airlines rallied outside more than 30 airports today to call attention to their contract demands. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, unions representing roughly 100,000 flight attendants are in the midst of contract talks. Together. Show together. Flight attendants marched and chanted and held signs that said things like, we're the front line that makes the bottom line. At United, Southwest, American, Alaska, and some smaller airlines, flight attendants say they deserve higher wages and better work-life balance. Chip Lowe, who's flown with United for seven years, says the job has become more stressful since the pandemic. You know, people are frustrated about kind of any and everything, and so the, the first line to de-escalate that is your flight attendants. 
The airlines say they're committed to reaching industry-leading agreements with the flight attendants' unions. Talks are scheduled to continue in the coming weeks. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Stocks took a beating today after stronger-than-expected inflation numbers warned investors' Fed, cuts, Fed rate cuts may be fewer and further between. The Dow fell 524 points today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Our nor'easter is now out to sea. But in some places in central Mass, the south coast and islands, it left behind more than a half foot of snow. Along the south coast, the big story was the high winds and flooding. WBUR's Patrick Madden has more. For many coastal communities like Situate, big, powerful storms also bring the threat of flooding and storm surge. Many of the storefronts here have sandbags out front just in case. At high tide this afternoon, around 2 p.m., the parking lot in downtown Situate became overrun with waves of seawater. Resident Ashley Dubay was trying to get ice cream with her family, but that wasn't in the cards. We are looking at a flooded parking lot in Situate Harbor and one of our favorite ice cream shops, Nona's, right on the corner that we wanted to stop by and completely inaccessible. Authorities are warning drivers in coastal communities to be on the lookout for flooded roads, especially around high tide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Patrick Madden. There are more than 27,000 power customers without electricity right now. The vast majority of them are on Cape Cod. Social service agencies spent the day working to get people living on the streets sheltered during today's storm and ahead of cold weather tonight. Outreach workers with the Boston Social Services nonprofit Pine Street Inn spent the day canvassing the city. Pine Street Inn spokesperson Barbara Trevison says the organization does not turn away anyone in the winter weather. And especially when it gets below freezing, we're especially concerned for people's well-being. Again, we bring out warm clothing, blankets, food, hot drinks to people, and, and just check on them on a regular basis. The city conducted a census of those living without shelter this month. The results are not in yet, but last year the city saw an increase in homelessness. The federal government is reimbursing Massachusetts nearly $13.5 million for COVID testing done in schools. The Department of Elementary and Secondary Education bought about 1.1 million test kits that were used for students, faculty, and staff at schools statewide. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is also sending more than $6 million to Cambridge Health Alliance for the cost of additional staff during the pandemic. In the forecast, slick overnight tonight. Be careful out there if you're on the roads as temperatures fall to the mid-20s overnight. Skies should start to clear eventually. A few clouds left over in the morning and then should see the sunshine for Valentine's Day. A windy and chilly day about freezing for a high. This is WBUR. It is freezing on the nose right now, 32 degrees at 607. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Funding for Ukraine has passed the Senate over strenuous objections from some Republicans. The party has moved a long way from the days of Ronald Reagan. So a party that thought of itself as 
you know, a leading voice for the promotion of democracy around the world now is very, very much in the thrall of autocracy. And I think that's Trump. We'll get into the rights support of Russia, my conversation with Anne Applebaum in a few minutes. But first, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention may soon drop its isolation guidance for people with COVID. Currently, people who test positive are supposed to stay home for at least five days to reduce the chances of spreading the virus to others. NPR's Peng Wong joins us now to talk more about what we know. Hi there. Hey, Juana. So change is in the air, it seems. What do we know about what the CDC is up to here? So the short answer is that we know a little bit. The planned change was described this morning in an article in the Washington Post. It was attributed to several unnamed CDC officials. And according to the article, the CDC plans to drop the current five-day isolation period for people who test positive for COVID. They plan to rely on symptoms instead. So if you don't have a fever, if your symptoms are mild, you can still go to school and you can still go to work. These changes could be coming as soon as April. But so far, Juana, the CDC is not confirming the report. A spokesperson for the agency said they have, quote, no updates to COVID guidelines to announce at this time, but it does follow what some states, California and Oregon specifically, have already done. Okay, so I understand there's no announcement yet, but why might they be doing this? Talk about the science. Has the virus or what we understand about COVID, has that changed? It has not. Um, Here's Jennifer Nazo from the Brown University School of Public Health. So first of all, the science of COVID has not changed. In no way do we suddenly think that you are not likely to be contagious shorter than five days or even potentially after five days. So this would not be a move designed to stop COVID from spreading. It's more of an acknowledgement that COVID spreading is now less consequential than it used to be, at least from a public health perspective. This winter, deaths and hospitalizations did go up, but they were nowhere near as high as they were in previous years. And in fact, the hospitals were mostly okay, not overwhelmed this virus season. So even though the science hasn't changed, if you test positive for COVID, you're probably contagious for a few days at least. Stopping the spread of COVID might not be as important as it used to be, at least when you look at some of the key pandemic metrics. Okay, so I'm curious how much of a difference a change like this would actually make. And do we know if people have even been following that guidance that we've gotten used to? Well, the reality is that even testing is more expensive now and it's harder to access than it used to be. So people may not even be testing to know that they have COVID, let alone be taking the steps to isolate for it. But Jessica Milati Rivera, she's an epidemiologist and advisor to the De Beaumont Foundation. She says the public health advice should be guiding people and not the other way around. It's like saying, well, people aren't really wearing their seatbelts, so I guess we can say seatbelts don't matter. That kind of defeats the purpose of providing evidence-based information That's still the responsibility of public health to do that. And a change in CDC guidance could make a big difference, for instance, in workplace policies. So if the CDC stops recommending people stay home for a week with COVID, workers might be forced to go into work a little sick. They might spread the virus to others. And for those that are very young, old, immune compromised, or people who have other medical conditions, it just makes it that much harder for them to stay healthy. Right. I mean, listening to you, this all makes it sound like the CDC is going to be treating COVID more like the flu. Yeah, that's the way that it's going, but some health experts really wonder if that's the right model. Like maybe instead of going with that status quo, we could pull our response to flu and other respiratory viruses more in the direction of COVID. So they say that we saw during COVID that with a little bit more effort, maybe masks and consideration for other people, we could just be doing a lot better in protecting people from these viruses. NPR's Peng Wong, thank you as always. You're welcome.
Let's consider for a moment the narrative built over many years of the Cold War of Russia as the bad guy, as America's enemy. Then consider widespread Republican resistance to sending more money to Ukraine to fight Russia. Or consider Tucker Carlson, who just flew to Moscow to sit down with Vladimir Putin for more than two hours of mostly softball questions. Consider Donald Trump, who says he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell they want to NATO members that Trump believes aren't spending enough on defense. So what gives? Why the romance between the American right and Russia? Well, we're going to put that now to Anne Applebaum. She's written about this in a piece for The Atlantic headlined The False Romance of Russia. Anne Applebaum, welcome. Thank you. I want to begin by noting that this piece you wrote, it's coming up on five years old. It's from 2019. Have you, as a longtime Russia watcher, tracked Any diminishment in the intervening years in American conservative admiration for Russia? No, on the contrary. I think the conservative party's romance with Russia has grown uh, quite a bit deeper. This is now a party that is profoundly critical of the United States. Uh, It doesn't like the the diverse society that we've become. It doesn't like immigration. Uh, It doesn't like the kind of national conversation we have. And ironically, like the left of a previous generation, they've imagined that a better uh, ideal version of our society exists in Russia, a kind of white Christian nation, you know, unified beneath a single leader without all this messy, ugly democracy and all these different kinds of people. And that's, I think, one of the roots of their admiration. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying the answer to what is Russia's appeal to the American right is that Russia more closely resembles the country that some conservatives here in the U.S. wish we were living in, wish the United States were? Yes, I think that's right. Um, The irony being, of course, that Russia isn't like that at all. Russia is, if anything, more diverse than the U.S. Russia has a very large Muslim population. It's also a country that persecutes uh, Protestant uh, religions. Uh, it, any any religion other than two or three that are recognized, Judaism, Orthodoxy, and Catholicism, count as sects and are and and cults and can be people can be arrested. So, the irony is that the nation that they imagine it to be is, of course, quite a long way from what it is. How much of this is personality driven? Like, how much is is about Vladimir Putin? Some of it's about Putin. I mean, I think more of it is really about Donald Trump. In a way, he made it okay to admire Russia because he admires Russia. He's said flattering things about Putin. Incidentally, has said very flattering things about other autocrats. He admires Xi Jinping. He admires the leader of North Korea. As he uses that language, he was using it when he was president. You know, that I think has had a pretty transformative impact on the party. So a party that thought of itself as um, you know, a leading voice for the promotion of democracy around the world now is very much in the thrall of autocracy. And I think that's um, I think that's Trump. Let me push you on this a little bit and ask, is some of the resistance, for example, to sending more military aid to Ukraine, is some of this practical? I'm thinking of a comment that um, Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, uh, something he said, which is basically why keep throwing money at a war in Ukraine that Vladimir Putin appears committed to fighting for years. It is shameful to conduct foreign policy through blank check writing to never-ending war, and it is extra shameful to do it while ignoring the problems of your own country. The answer to that is that you have to look at what happens if we don't do that. 
if Putin wins, if he takes over all of Ukraine, which is still his goal, and which he's stated very recently in, a, in his conversation with Tucker Carlson is still his goal, um, then the military problem and the challenge to American allies and ultimately America itself becomes worse. So what we're paying now is a fraction of what we will pay and the price that we will be forced to pay if Putin wins. You know, I should also say, I'm, I'm not sure Americans realize the degree to which the role of America as the security provider in Europe, in Asia, and elsewhere um, opens up other kinds of economic opportunities. And why do people buy American products? Why do they buy American energy equipment? Some of that big American investment, some of that is because it's felt in particularly smaller countries that, you know, we need to make some gesture in the direction of the United States. I mean, all that is sounds a little fuzzy, but there is a very real economic advantage that we have from, from playing the role that we do. And it, it is amazing that so many senior politicians are so willing to give it up that quickly. Mm. I want to ask about one other part of this, and you nodded to it, but the, the role of American culture wars and how those are being projected in this conversation. The belief among conservative circles, uh, some conservative circles, that America is too woke, that progressives have lost their mind, and that Vladimir Putin, whatever you make of his policy in Ukraine or anywhere else, he doesn't abide that stuff in Russia. He wins elections. He doesn't tolerate dissent. He's photographed, you know, bare-chested riding great steeds through the fields, all of that. So he actually goes even a bit farther than that. So Putin intervenes very directly in American culture wars. So he talks about America having all these many different genders and America being degenerate. Um, he talks about, you know, how homosexuality and trans people are, are making, you know, bringing down Europe and the United States. Um, that's a big theme on Russian television. Sometimes Putin talks about it in public. Um, he's talked about the U.S. as a satanic culture, you know, an anti-religious culture. And some of that is, he may believe, um, and some of that is absolutely designed to appeal to the American right, um, the European right, and indeed traditionalist, you know, people and cultures around the world. I mean, as I say, a lot of it's a fiction. I mean, there's no evidence that Russia is particularly strong on family values when you look closely at statistics and how people live. Um, but it does have an appeal in a world where, you know, social norms are changing very fast, where there's demographic change, there's economic change. Um, and Putin uses this traditionalist language as a way of you know, creating the impression that he's the leader of some kind of alternate civilization where things are more stable. And that's had a that's been very successful. Ann Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. Coming up on WBUR, kids making the most of a ski slope today that didn't get snow. The Dow and the S&P both fell about one and four-tenths of a percent today. It was the Dow's worst day since last March. NASDAQ also gave up ground. It dropped one and eight-tenths of a percent. Boston-based tech company Merlin has inked a deal with the U.S. Air Force. Merlin will work on ways to automate operations on the KC-135 Strato tanker aircraft. That's the one used to refuel other aircraft while in flight. The company said today the plan is to start reducing the workloads for crews on the plane doing the refueling and then reduce the number of people on board. Eventually, it could make the entire plane 
unstaffed. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list, bridgew.edu. And Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Snowstorm was a non-event for some, the main event for others, depending on geography. The Boston area and parts north got little, if any, accumulation. Worcester County and Cape Cod and the south coast got a lot. Storms moving out now. Tonight it should be cold, only mid-20s. Tomorrow gradually turning sunny, about 32 for a high on Valentine's Day. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Thousands of students in the Boston area had the day off from school today because of the expected snow. Many kids headed to the Blue Hill Ski Area in Canton, which did not get a lot of snow, so they made the best of it, according to WBUO Simone Rios. Liz McGinnis and her sons Frankie and Will stop into the cafeteria for chicken fingers and something to drink. They were expecting to wake up to a big snowstorm, but where they live in Quincy, they only saw rain. Well, what were you hoping we were going to do this morning? Ah, uh, sledding. <laughs> Probably not much sledding going on today. There wasn't much sledding over near us because it was rain. Then we looked at the cam over here and saw there was snow, so we headed this way. Frankie McGinnis's little brother, seven-year-old Will, was also annoyed that the snow wasn't accumulating. Were you pretty excited to not have to go to school today? Yeah, but I was more excited for the snow that was going to happen. So. And so it's snowing, but the snow's like not sticking to the ground. Yes. And that's kind of annoying, so. It is kind of annoying. But it's sticking here. It's only like frosted. It's only like frost. Today's snowfall might have been a bust for sledders in the Boston area. The ground wasn't cold enough for the snow to stick, but it was a boon for the skiers and snowboarders heading up the slopes on the chairlift. Officials at Blue Hills said with a ground pack of artificial snow, the fresh stuff is able to pile up. Well, if Mother Nature can help, it's always good, right? Especially for the clientele if they see snow always in there in their back or front yard, it obviously makes it more hype, right? Ivan Fuchs is the guy in charge of turning water into snowflakes at the Blue Hills. Originally from Switzerland, he says the snow coming down today is ideal, the kind that's good for snowballs. Correct, yeah, yeah. a little bit moisture in it, um, especially for the base area for, for the snow in general. We do like fluffy snow, but you know, the fluffy snow goes melts, has a lot of air in it. There's also an economic windfall to the snow. Fuchs says the ski area uses millions of gallons of water to feed its snow machines. The more it snows naturally, the less they have to spend on H2O. I mean, you think about it, even a small hill like we are, there's a lot going into snowmaking, right? We get a foot of snow, I mean, we take it. <laughs> Terry Murray of Holbrook has been skiing at the Blue Hills every day this season. Seeing fresh snow on the ground puts a big smile on his face. What's it like having real snow? Ah, it's quiet. I mean, before you'd go this, you can't even hear yourself coming down. Murray says it's great to have a ski area so close to the city, even when snowstorms are in short supply. Here we go. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. 
Love it or loathe it, Valentine's Day is upon us. The so-called Hallmark holiday tomorrow brings its annual run on mushy saccharin cards of the sugar is sweet and so are you variety. But there was a time when people sent and received some pretty vicious Valentines. Historian Susan Benjamin takes us back to the Victorian era through this audio time capsule. In the 1800s, around 1850s, let's say, New Englanders were giving gifts. They had chocolates, they had flowers, and of course, they had cards. These cards were absolutely beautiful, lacy, feathery, just sumptuous cards that were actually invented by a Worcester native whose name was Esther Howland, and she was the mother of the commercialized Valentines. What she didn't know, and so many others didn't know, was something else was looming. And that was called the comic Valentine, or even more to our liking, the vinegar Valentine. It was mean. It was snarky. It was startling. It almost made you cringe. No, I take that back. It did make you cringe. I am not attracted by your glitter, for well I know how very bitter my life would be if I should take you for my spouse, Rattlesnake. Oh no, I'd not accept the ring, or evermore t'would prove a sting. Vinegar cards weren't just between people in love or not, as the case may be. It was about people who wanted to get their revenge. And they gave them anonymously. These were sent to lawyers and shopkeepers and teachers and doctors who gave you the wrong kind of syrup that made you sick. Here's an example of one that was published in the Fall River Daily Evening News. Your pads and pills may cure our ills. But your homely face gives us the chills. Before you think that these Valentines were some kind of an anomaly, like who would write those? Who would send those? No. According to the Boston Globe, and this is in 1886, one factory alone pumped out 15 million comic Valentines in a measly 5 million sentimental ones. By far, though, the most influential maker of the Vinegar Valentines was a guy named C. Howard. He was from Boston, and he was called the Valentine Man. The most prominent victims of C. Howard's and all those other Valentine's producers were women. And the insults are pretty standard. I mean, there was plenty about the reasons why one person was an old maid and that her nose was too big and nobody ever wanted to talk to her, the usual stuff. But some of it was really kind of startling. Listen to this one. It's horrible. You claim you're good at anything. So come on, show me some proof. Let me see how good you are at jumping off the roof. All the way throughout the history of Vinegar Valentines, people took real moral offense, and they said joking on Valentine's Day may seem funny, but no, it isn't. Love is actually very serious. In its own way, the New England card-making universe was the one that helped take down Vinegar Valentines, although it took them a really long time. So you have to remember, 1850, we have Esther Howland, 
at her home living as a single woman with her family and she came out with this amazing Valentine's Day card with all sorts of lace and all sorts of flowers. It was doing so well that eventually George C. Whitney decided to buy her company and around nine others. It's not really clear how many of those actually were making the Vinegar Valentines, but what we do know is that his motto was industry, punctuality, and Christianity, and the Vinegar Valentines had to go. Throughout the entire lifespan of Vinegar Valentines, newspapers kept reporting, even into the 1950s, that they were no more. And all through this time, they never went away. You've got more curves than a roller coaster. Your clothes fit like a glove. There's one thing wrong, glamour puss. You've a face only a mother could love. Today, we kind of still have them in this great big envelope that we call social media. Anyway, happy Valentine's Day, no matter how you get your message. And may all your messages be sweet. That's author and historian Susan Benjamin. Our piece was produced by WBUR's Andrea Shea. You can see a few vinegar valentines at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Be careful of black ice on the roads and sidewalks tonight and tomorrow, too, as temperatures freeze up from the moisture left on the roads with today's rain and snow. Should fall to the mid-20s overnight tonight. Then tomorrow, Valentine's Day, mainly sunny skies eventually. Should be chilly, though. Temperatures in the low to mid-30s. Sunny again on Thursday, too, rounding out at about 40 degrees. Checking sports, Celtics are on the road tonight to meet up with the Brooklyn Nets, 7.30 start time. Tonight, the Bruins skate against Tampa Bay at the Garden at 7 o'clock. Bruins forward Brad Marchand will play his 1,000th game tonight. Every one of them has been in a Bruins uniform. Marchand is the eighth player in B's history to skate in 1,000 or more games. The team will recognize him before next Monday's game at the Garden. This is WBUR. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com.